Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory, the staff part of the podcast. And I'm Ian Tullock, the graph part of the podcast. So Rachel and I have DM'd each other for a long time over the months, and we've Always loved hearing the other's opinion on how we go about breaking down the game. So we thought it would be a really good idea to have a podcast together because she understands the coaching aspect of everything, the tactical elements of hockey, breaking down video, having been a video coach and worked with an NHL team behind the scenes. She's really good at knowing what teams are looking at behind the scenes. Whereas I tend to be a lot more analytics focused in my approach. I tend to use a lot of numbers and statistics when I'm trying to prove my reasoning behind a certain thought. So I feel like it gives us a nice little balance between different perspectives. And I think it's going to lead to a lot of great conversations. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things that Ian and I are really going to work to make sure happens is that it's really understandable. So if we're talking about a statistic, we're going to make it easy to understand or we'll give you sort of the gist of what the statistic means. Or if I'm explaining a tactic, I'll explain it from the point that, okay, this is what a coach would look for in terms of just watching the game. So we're trying to make it as fun and as easy to understand as possible because everybody has fun when they understand. And that's the thing. I just love hockey. That's why I started doing a Leafs podcast in the first place, the Leafs Geeks podcast. It's the other podcast I do. And now I'm doing this one with you. It's going to be a lot of fun. I just I can't get enough hockey in my life. So this is just another avenue for me. But for people who are curious as to why the heck this is called the Staff and Graph podcast, did you want to give them a bit of background on your your work with uh, the New Jersey Devils and uh, maybe that fun Jeff Merrick story behind it? (laughs) Yeah. So Ian, uh, Ian mentioned the fun Jeff Merrick story. Um, Essentially, what happened was I was on the ice with the Leafs at their development camp, and I was on the ice with guys like Scott Pellerin and Daryl Belfry and a bunch of the Maple Leafs prospects. And so there were writers sort of covering the development camp, and there was a picture taken, and it was posted in the newspaper. And I happened to be in this picture, and in the caption underneath the picture... It had named, like, here's Scott Pellerin, here's Daryl Belfry, here's, I think, Dakota Joshua, and then a female staffer. So it named (laughs) everyone by name except me. And ever since then, Jeff Merrick has called me female staffer, and it's basically become a term of endearment. So when I got hired by the Devils in 2017, Jeff said, well, your nickname's female staffer, and now you're actually employed by an NHL team, so you're officially the female staffer. And ever since then, it's just kind of been run with, and I'm cool with it. I like it. So you're you're the staff part of our podcast, and that brings us to the graph part of the podcast. Uh, you kind of helped me with that nickname because there was a day on the radio where Jeff O'Neill was really mad about a Frederick Gauthier article that I'd written. It was controversial at the time because he had zero points at that point in the season, which Jeff O'Neill made sure that we all knew. And he called, he was yelling. He was saying, Ian Graph wrote an article about Frederick Gauthier saying he's having an unreal season. And the reason he called me Ian Graff was because the tweet that I used to promote that article had a graph showing Frederick Gauthier's like, shot share and his uh, scoring chance share that season. And I think you DM'd me immediately afterwards. And you said, Ian, you have to change your Twitter handle to, to Ian Graff. Like, that's the rule now. You just have to. <laughs> yeah, those are the rules. I'm sorry. But in the same way that 
I now became female staffer. You are now Ian Graff. And you know what? When you have a nickname like that, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fun. So we got staff and Graff here. It's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait to get into some fun discussions over the next few months, breaking down some of the finer points of hockey. And today, with uh, Ovechkin creeping up on 1,200 points, I think he's probably reached it by the time we put this podcast out, we thought, why don't we break down just how dominant he's been on the power play and kind of how he's been able to do it, the evolution of the power play, the evolution of the 1-3-1 formation and how modern power plays work. Yeah, and we'll just give you sort of a quick intro to this. Um the one three one is essentially you have one player at the top at the point. You have three players sort of in the middle of the ice. You have one on the left, one in the middle, and one on the right. And then you have a player who kind of goes between standing at the net front and then on either side of the net. So there's sort of your one three one setup. So today what we're gonna kind of break down is how different teams who have different personnel use this tactic effectively. And I think the Washington Capitals are kind of the the best example over the last few years. You know, they're the the shining example of a team that's just really gotten the most out of it. And you see it with the ridiculous slap shot from the top of the left circle. It's basically been renamed the Ovechkin spot. And you have Backstrom who's able to feather those passes. And then you put some surrounding talent in there. You know, TJ Oshie in the slot, John Carlson at the point, a nice net front presence, whether it's someone like Johansson or Kuznetsov. And you're able to get the most out of it. But what's interesting is that never used to be the way that teams ran their power plays. We always used to have three forwards, two defensemen. You'd have two defensemen along the blue line and you'd be firing a lot of low percentage shots. And I don't think it was until about 2012, 2013 when teams really started to adapt to the the 1-3-1 formation. Yeah, and I think um, you brought up a good point there. Before Kuznetsov sort of broke on scene, um, when Adam Oates came on for the lockout-shortened 2013 season, he kind of started this 1-3-1 setup, and it was Carlson at the top, and they had Ovechkin. They didn't have Oshie at the time, but they had Backstrom and Marcus Johansson, who was playing the bottom sort of part and I think it might have been Semen maybe I can't remember off the top of my head but essentially what it did was it forced teams to pick so you have Backstrom who's probably one of the best passers in the NHL and he's sort of operating as the trigger man on the half wall you have Ovechkin in his office and you have Carlson and with Ovechkin and Carlson both being right-handed shots Um, They're both one-timer options for Backstrom. So you're forcing teams to pick. Are they going to pick and force Backstrom to thread the pass to Ovechkin? Or are they going to give up the pass to Carlson? And that's sort of the first 1-3-1 tactic that is important, is the fact that the three teams that we're going to talk about today um, in Washington, Tampa Bay, and Winnipeg, they all have a one-timer threat from the point. Yeah, and it's funny, all three of them have it on the left point in that it's Ovechkin, a right-hand shot from the top of the left circle, Lane, a right-hand shot from the same spot, and Stamkos, a right-hand shot from the same spot. But they they utilize it in different ways, and it's really interesting the way they go about it. But I think uh, just a quick interesting backstory on Ovechkin is that coming into the 2012-2013 season, before the real evolution of the 1-3-1 power play, he'd actually really struggled in his previous two seasons to generate goals. He was a perennial 50-goal scorer, as we all know, early in his career. And then Bruce Boudreau, the year he got fired, unfortunately Ovechkin had a real down year, you know, low shooting percentage, low PDO, just nothing was going right. He only scored 32 goals. And that's when Dale Hunter was brought in, 
and that was an adventure that the season afterwards there is uh th- there wasn't a great fit there between both uh the player and the coach wasn't getting minutes late in tie games wasn't getting a lot of usage at five on five the power play wasn't clicking so despite being a perennial 50 goal scorer for the first five years of his career he followed it up with a 32 goal season and a 38 goal season and it was looking like, oh man, maybe he's not the an incredible 40 to 50 goal threat that we thought he was. Ever since Adam Oates brought in the 1-3-1 one, one power play in 2012, Ovechkin has won 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. If we assume he's going to win the Rocket Richard this year, which he's on pace to, he'll have won six of a possible seven Rocket Richard trophies over the last seven years. It's just ridiculous. Completely revitalized his career by enabling that slap shot from the top of the left circle. And he's, in my opinion, the best goal scorer in NHL history. And if you look at a seven-year stretch, these past seven years, I don't think anyone's come close in NHL history to rivaling that kind of success. Well, when you look at it, um, Micah McCurdy, in effective math on Twitter, has a great thread on Ovechkin's shot slash goal maps since the beginning of his career. And if you match up the coaching timeline around sort of 2013-2014 it started to kind of be more spread out in terms of his scoring but then once you hit 2015-2016-2016-2017 and 2017-2018 they're pretty much all from the circle or the net front on rebounds but the majority of his shots if not almost all of them are coming from that left circle and in one of the most interesting stats actually to come to the surface because of this was Ovechkin has 653 goals in the NHL that's not bad yeah not terrible and 284 of them have come from the left circle or above and if I had to look at the charts that Micah provided and match them up with that stat I would say a lot of those like that has really skyrocketed in the past three seasons because even if you do that math, that's 43.5%. Just nuts. From the left circle, that's not an efficient shot location, yet he finds a way to make it efficient. Right, and that's sort of the power play tactic is you have to respect Ovechkin and his one-timer because if you don't, you're going to get scored on. But then you give up potentially the pass to the middle in Oshi, which is a one-timer, or you give up the one-timer pass to Carlson, which is a one-timer. So all Backstrom has to do is when you have a player with a stick in, let's say, the Ovechkin passing lane, this, as soon as Backstrom turns his head to look at Carlson, he will see the defender switch his stick to that lane. Backstrom has the ability to get that puck through to Ovechkin in that split second, and it's on the tape virtually every time because the chemistry between Backstrom and Ovechkin is insane. It's basically the chrysalids. They're they're telepathic. Essentially. So once that pass goes through, because you had to respect Carlson's shot, well, now you've really got yourself in trouble because you've got the Ovechkin one-timer sort of about to be unleashed on your goaltender. And, And I don't care what anyone says, but I would rather have Ovechkin not shoot, and I'll take my chances with Carlson. And it's interesting because that's what happened in the playoffs. A lot of teams were trying so hard to take away Ovechkin, but that opened up a ton of space for Carlson to move into the, the higher slot. You know, basically between the two faceoff circles, there's more uh, ice available in the middle of the ice, closer to where Oshie is. 
And Carlson was able to, to jump in and put up a lot of points, whether they were goals or shots that resulted in rebounds that someone like Oshie could jump on top of. So it's really tough because you basically have to pick your poison. Are you going to let Ovechkin beat you from the top of the circle? Well, probably not. But then you're giving Backstrom a four and three down low, and there aren't too many better passers in the league who can do more with less than Backstrom. And, and all you need is just TJ Oshie open for a little bit. Evgeny Kuznetsov, who has a little bit of space down low. John Carlson, who has now more room to, to step in and put a bomb on net. And it's just, it's so hard to defend. I think that's part of the reason every team in the NHL has adopted a 1-3-1 formation. Just because it, you can't cover every player on the ice. You have to give up something. Well, one of the things that um, is key, and I noticed it uh, when Washington was playing the New Jersey Devils, it was just really prominent. And New Jersey actually has a very effective penalty kill, um, is that because Ovechkin and Carlson are both right-handed shots, they were switching positions. So there was movement on the power play. So you would see Carlson move to the Ovechkin spot and Ovechkin move to the Carlson spot. And then you really have to pick because now you've got players moving. So you've now got your penalty killer sort of has to pick which lane am I still going to take the higher percentage shot, which would be the Carlson shot at this point. Or do I just take my chances? I cover Ovechkin at the point because he's just got such a dangerous shot. And while that that top penalty killer there is sort of caught in the middle, that's when the opening for Oshi really became an option because the penalty killer was so focused on what was going on with Carlson and Ovechkin that Oshi was wide open for a one-timer. And when you get a one-timer from the middle of the slot, that's a really high danger scoring area that is likely to either score immediately or create a rebound, in which case you have a bunch of players going to the net because at that point you have Backstrom collapsing. Oshi knows he's shooting, so he's collapsing. Kuznetsov is there. There's just so many options, and it just makes it so dangerous with that type of player movement. And when you have a one-timer like Ovechkin and like Carlson, once you add player movement in there, it's that it becomes that much more difficult to defend. Out of curiosity, if you're coaching the penalty kill, let's say, and Ovechkin's now at the blue line and Carlson's at the top of the circle, who would you rather the penalty killer commit to? If he has to pick one, which shot would you want him to take away first? Because I feel like it's a tough choice because Ovechkin's in the least dangerous position, but it's Ovechkin. And Carlson's, you know, in the more dangerous scoring opportunity place. He's at the top of the left circle. But are you really okay giving Ovechkin all that space? I'm not sure what I'd want to pick as a player. Yeah, I think the one key thing there is you can't give it, you can't give Oshie the slot one-timer so you're gonna have to give up either the Carlson or the Ovechkin and for me I'm always of the mindset that the shot distance slash um shot location is very important so I'm taking away the left circle because not only is it in closer proximity to the net but the goalie if the pass is coming from Backstrom the goalie now has to slide that much further to cover where Carlson is, whereas to Ovechkin, all he has to do is go from the middle of the left of his crease and push to the top, which is a significantly smaller push than across to where Carlson is. So I'm still going to take away the left circle just because I think the goaltending is such an important aspect here. And the more time you can give a goaltender to get set, even a split second, it could be the difference between a save and a goal. 
And like you said, getting that east-west move, you know, from the right side of the ice to the left side of the ice, that really forces the goalie to move in his crease. The shooter will have more open net to shoot at. And that's something that's backed up by the numbers. Whether you call it a seam pass or a, or a cross-ice pass, east-west pass, in the analytics community, we tend to call it a royal road pass. But anytime you basically make that pass from one side of the ice to the other in the offensive zone through the middle of the slot... It just causes nightmares for a defense, and it really increases the shooting percentage of the offense. On the power play, the average shot goes in about, I think, 10 to, to 11 or 12% of the time, the average shot in the power play. But if you get a cross-ice pass going, an east-west pass, it's 25%. And what I found really interesting is that even if you're three passes removed from a seam pass, from a Royal Road pass, so let's say Backstrom makes the cross-ice pass to Ovechkin on the top of the circle and then there are two more passes that happen, that shot that comes at the end of that will still have a 25% chance of going in. And I think it makes sense when you think about it because you've broken down the defense. Now everybody's scrambling all over the place to cover that one player. He's now out of position. You can pass it to the open player. He is now out of position. You just have everybody trying to cover the guy that they were supposed to cover in the first place, and it creates a ridiculous amount of chaos, and, and that's why coaches are really adamant about not allowing seam passes on the penalty kill. Right, and I think that goes perfectly into what Tampa Bay does because Tampa Bay doesn't have... Uh, they they have their one-timer threats, but they have three one-timer threats. <laughs> it's not fair. They have Kucherov, who plays in Backstrom's spot. They have Stamkos, who plays in Ovechkin's spot. And then they have Hedman up top. And all three of them are capable of hammering it to the back of the net. So when you talk about getting D-moving and getting the penalty killers sort of running around with their heads cut off. Tampa Bay does a terrific job of doing that. And that's because Kucherov and Point have the ability to sort of play catch. Stamkos and Point have the ability to play catch. You have one of JT Miller or Yanni Gord at the net front who can also act as a bumper. And when you have that kind of skill, let's say Kucherov has the puck who is a shooter to begin with. So one, you have to respect that threat because you have to respect that this guy's just going to walk in and fire it bar down. But if he decides, okay, I want to pass it into point. Okay, well, let's say you take away the pass to point. Well, now he's going to fire it back to Hedman and Hedman can choose to do one of two things. He can hammer it through on a one-timer or he can fake the shot and put it over to Stamkos. And once you get that much movement, you're guaranteed to catch someone sort of lost in the middle and either Stamkos is going to get a clean shot or he's going to have a clean pass into the middle to create a scoring chance. So I think when you talk about getting players moving or getting the penalty kill sort of out of position, Tampa Bay is the best team at that. And I think it's part of the reason they've just been so effective. Having Kucherov on the right point and Stamkos on the left point, you're just you're not supposed to be able to have that kind of talent that's so perfectly meshed to play with each other on a power play. No other team has that. Some teams have, you know, one player of that caliber and they can fit a power play around it, like we've seen Washington do with Ovechkin. But having an Ovechkin on the left side and then having like a left-handed Ovechkin on the right side, it's just it wouldn't be fair. How do you defend that? And that's the reason that if you look over the last three years, Tampa Bay has the highest goals per minute on the power play or goals per 60 on the power play. And it's because of their ability to just go with those cross seam passes, beat goaltenders from distance. And if you know that you can get beat from the top of the circle, then your penalty killers have to come out further. And that opens up space in the middle of the ice for Braden Point, who, by the way, is on pace for 100 points. 
and the guy in front of the net, whether it's JT Miller or who is it now? I know they used to have Nemestikov down there. I'm not sure who they have in the middle. It's, of the- I believe it's JT Miller, but you brought up a good point with Braden Point. And if I'm not mistaken, he actually has the most power play goals for Tampa Bay. And that's because he's a shooting threat. So not only is he a the bumper player in the middle, which essentially what the bumper does is it acts as sort of a bumper you can pass he can pass to Kucherov he could pass to Stamkos he could pass to Hedman he could pass it down low he can receive passes from sort of any one of the other four players but when the bumper is a shooting threat in the way that point is then you have to be careful because if the pass gets into him whether it's from Stamkos it's from Hedman it's from the down low player it's from Kucherov he can either shoot the puck or he can do a one-touch pass or a fake shot and a pass to whomever else for the one-timer, and that's when they freeze the D. So that little fake, because you have to respect point shot, given that he's in the middle of the ice and about to shoot the puck, will freeze your D. And once a D are frozen, he just has to either bump it back to the point for a headman one-timer, bump it over to the right to Kucherov for a one-timer or bump it to the left to Stamkos for a one-timer. So when you've got all of those options at your disposal, as a penalty kill, you can't cover all of those options, especially when the puck is moved as quickly as Tampa Bay moves it. And I'm talking like one-touch passes consistently on the tape. It's like ticky-taka in soccer. It's just like tick, 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 boom, empty net. And it's just, it's not fair. It's really hard to defend and... The fact that Stamkos can beat you from up top and Kucherov can beat you from up top, it's very difficult. If I were a team, I honestly might just ignore Victor Hedman because as dangerous as he is as a shooter, he's going to be shooting from the blue line or just a bit inside. I might just really focus on point Kucherov, Stamkos, and take my chances with the other guys, but... I don't know. How would you go about defending it? What's the ideal way? Obviously, if there was an ideal way, teams would be able to stop it, and they haven't been able to stop it. But but how do you uh, how do you limit their effectiveness as a unit? I think the way you limit Tampa Bay's effectiveness on the power play is to not let them set up in zone. So when they're coming in on their power play entry, you need to be super aggressive. Like I would be hanging a guy back to try and disrupt that drop pass or at least try and disrupt either point or Kucherov from carrying it in because once they get set up they just they have too many options and if you if you play aggressive and you play aggressive enough to cause a mistake which generally happens before everyone is set up perfectly then you can be effective but once they're set up and they're moving the puck quickly at that point it it really becomes about blocking shots and getting a save or hoping that there is a bobble because if you're aggressive enough, you can capitalize on a bobbled puck. But the key with Tampa Bay is, yeah, your stick can be in the lane and your sticks have to be active. You have to have your stick in a shooting lane consistently. But I would say you want to try and prevent that entry before they even set up. Because once they're set up in formation, it's game over. Yeah, essentially, and that's what I think some teams are starting to do is the drop pass on entry is becoming a very widely used tactic. Some teams you're seeing are hanging a guy back behind the puck, the original puck carrier so that when the puck is dropped to the guy who is supposed to be making the entry, so Toronto has Marner, Tampa has Point and Kucherov, one of the two, 
once the puck is dropped back, there's still pressure. There's a player there to pressure that player. So it's not just a, a foregone conclusion entry. And that's something that I feel Arizona and Carolina have done a really good job of on the penalty kill. It's funny, Arizona's really struggled and struggled in their other areas and they haven't been getting the goaltending, but their penalty kill has been otherworldly this season. It's ridiculous. They're almost break even in goal differential. The amount of penalty kill chances they've been able to generate and the fact that they haven't allowed very many power play goals against, they do such a good job at disrupting you on the entry. There isn't much space for you to gain the zone and set up in formation. And that kind of goes along with a lot of the research that we've seen is that once you're set up in formation, you tend to generate a lot of chances. So the best teams at scoring on the power play, the best teams at generating shots and chances on the power play are the teams that are best able to gain the zone and then set up. It's something that Washington's exceptional at. It's something that Tampa Bay is really good at. And it makes sense because you need skilled players to get in the zone and to set up. But once you're set up, it's very hard to defend you, which is why you want to be aggressive on that drop pass, on that break-in. And I feel like if you look at what Carolina's done over the last few years, if you look at what Arizona's doing this year, I feel like you can learn a little bit in terms of how to tactically prevent teams like Tampa Bay from getting in there in the first place. Yeah, and I think the key there is to pressure before entry and then on entry before there's a setup. If you can be aggressive and win the puck back, that's how you'll be successful. Because once, say for example, Tampa Bay, Washington, those teams, once they're set up, I would say that the most effective way to defend it is to not get caught chasing. So stay in your box or your diamond, however you choose to defend. With Tampa Bay, I it's got to be sort of a hybrid but stay in your formation because at bare minimum, you can guarantee that there will be sticks in at least a few of the passing lanes. So the more options you can take away, the better off. Now with a team like Tampa, if you sort of stay in the formation, you might be able to not give up as many scoring opportunities because guys won't be as wide open, which is a product of chasing. So basically... You want to stop them from getting set up. So you want to be aggressive on the break-in attempt. You want to be aggressive on the drop pass. But the second they actually get in and set up in formation, you want to be a bit more conservative and disciplined. Exactly. You can't get caught chasing. And if there's a loose puck, I mean, you absolutely should go after it. But you can't send two guys after it. Like You have to uh, depend on your player, whether it's your defenseman or your forward, to win that battle. Because if teams like that win the battles and you've got a three-on-one and the last thing as a coach that you want to see is a three-on-one with Braden Point, Nikita Kucherov, and Victor Hedman. So we've been talking about Tampa Bay, who's just like the model of success for how you operate the one-three-one over the last three years. Take a wild guess as to who's first in the league in, in points per 60 on the power play. It's Nikita Kucherov. Guess who's third? It's Steven Stamkos. It's just like these guys are so good. Guess who's sixth? Victor Hedman, they have three of the top six in points per 60 on the power play over the last three years. It's just, it's unbelievable the way that they're able to get that thing going. One interesting wrinkle in the 1-3-1 is what Winnipeg does, because unlike Washington and Tampa Bay, Winnipeg has a right-handed player on the right wall. All these other times we've been seeing a right-handed player on the left wall and a left-handed player on the right wall. You know, having shooting options from both sides, one-timer options available on both sides. Winnipeg very clearly has a right-handed shot on the right side, you know, a right-handed shot in the middle of the ice, a right-handed shot at the point. They have so many right-handed shots on this power play. It almost reminds me of kind of what uh, Edmonton was trying earlier in the year, just the opposite, except Edmonton had five left-handed shots and 
that didn't work at all. But I find it interesting that Winnipeg has so many right-handed shots available on this power play, but they find a way to make it work. So when healthy, and the key there would be when healthy, because I believe Truba's playing the top right now. It's not as effective as when Bufflin's there, though. Exactly. So you've got Wheeler on the right wall. You've got Bufflin up top, who has a terrific one-timer. You've got Patrick Laine, who stands in Ovechkin's office, and we all know what he can do to a puck. And then you've got Mark Shifley in the middle. And I would say of the three players that we've talked about who play the bumper spot, Mark Shifley is the most prolific shooting threat. And then you've got Kyle Connor, who sort of plays the net front slash side of the net role. And he's the lefty on the power play. So they've got four righties and one lefty. But the thing with Kyle Connor is, is he's really good at, at finding space and he can draw the defender or at least one of them with him. And as soon as he can draw that defender, whether it's down to the goal line or it's to the net front, it opens up this huge amount of room in the middle of the ice. So now as a penalty killer, you have to decide as a forward, am I taking away the passing lane to Mark Shifley, who is a one-timer and a legitimate scoring threat from the hash marks, or am I going to take away the one-timer pass to Line? Because... Yes, Bufflin has a terrific one-timer, but the two biggest shooting threats on that power play from a one-timer perspective are Shifley and Line based on proximity to net. Exactly. It's like what we talked about with John Carlson. Like, yeah, he's a great shooter, but I'll take my chances giving that shot up from the blue line versus a shot from the slot, you know? Yeah, and the bottom line there is fans get upset when you're giving up goals from Carlson or Hedman or... Dustin Bufflin because they are from the point but the reality is is I'll take my chances with a a one-timer from the point versus giving a guy like Mark Shifley a wide open one-timer or quick snapshot from the hash marks it's just it's too dangerous of an opportunity to give up and the expected goals from a shot from the hash marks versus a shot from the point are just completely different and I'm sure you can definitely sort of explain that side of it yeah I mean basically if you look at every shot that's been taken on the power play over the last 10 years the average shot that goes in from the blue line but if it's a slap shot from the blue line goes in what like five percent of the time and the average shot from the middle of the slot that goes in it's like 30 percent of the time so you'd much rather take away that super dangerous scoring opportunity than the low percentage opportunity. Much like in the NBA, you give teams a deep two-point shot if they want it. You know, the mid-range shot. I'm fine with you taking an open mid-range shot. I'm not going to give you a layup or a dunk. I'm going to take away those those very high percentage shots and force you to take the lower percentage shot. Exactly, and one of the things I think teams are having issues with is sort of picking, and they have players who they use their hockey sense, for lack of a better word, and oh my goodness, I have to take away... the this passing option when the reality is you just need them to stay disciplined and go okay I need to make sure that I'm not giving up the one timers or the scoring chances from the super dangerous areas because as a teammate I have to be able to trust that my goaltender is going to be able to make the stop off a one timer from the point if he can see it I'm not sure how radical of an idea this is but what would you say if a coach came in and said, we're just going to completely ignore the player on the point? We're going to ignore Hedman, we're going to ignore Carlson, or in Winnipeg's case, we're going to ignore Bufflin and just focus on the other passing lanes. 
See, I don't think you can do that because all of the guys who play D on the power play are smart enough and good enough to sort of move around and create movement. So if you look at Washington, for example, we talked about how Ovechkin and Carlson consistently move. Well, you're not going to just ignore Ovechkin because you could get lost, and the last thing you need is Ovechkin getting lost in the fray, and then all of a sudden he's wide open in a danger area. So I think you definitely have to keep your eye on them. But as far as committing... I would rather you commit to making sure that the pass doesn't get across the line A or the pass doesn't get into Shifley because if you know the pass is going to Bufflin and you're not already outstretched trying to reach for the pass, you can always go down to block the shot. One thing I find interesting about Winnipeg's power play while we're talking about it is just we talked about Shifley, you need to take that away. Despite the fact that he's arguably a, you know, a top 10 center in the NHL, maybe even a top 20 player in the NHL, the number of times he's wide open in the middle of the slot is just ridiculous on that power play. And I think it's a couple things. It's like you talked about Kyle Connor knowing how to draw away the defender in front of the net. And sometimes, even though he's a left-handed shot, he'll sneak back door and force the defender to come with him. And now, boom, Shifley's wide open in the middle of the slot. But this is all because of the fact that teams are terrified of Patrick Lane. And much like Ovechkin, you know, you're so afraid of Ovechkin you give Backstrom that four on three down low. Teams are so afraid of Patrick Lonnie that they'll leave Shifley open in the middle of the slot sometimes. And it's not ideal. Obviously, they should be more structured and they should have another guy there. But sometimes you have a guy who's stuck on an island and he has to choose. Am I going to cover Shifley in the slot or Lonnie from the top of the circle? And neither choice is really ideal because someone's going to end up with a high quality scoring chance. But this is something that I, I wish that we had a metric for. In the NBA, we have these uh, gravity metrics, these spacing metrics, because we can tell, oh, okay, when Steph Curry is on the floor, defenders are drawn to him to such an extreme degree that it opens up space for his other teammates. I feel like with Patrick Lane, he can be at the top of the circle or sometimes even higher. Sometimes he can be between the blue line and the top of the circle and draws out the defender so far, it opens up a ridiculous amount of space for Mark Shifley, who scores an easy goal. Patrick Lane won't get a point on that play. He won't get an assist on that play. But the threat of his shot is what opened up that space. Exactly. And as a coaching staff, that's something you definitely have to be wary of because the farther that Line gets towards the blue line, the less dangerous his shot becomes. So you don't need to be as focused, but you still need that player who's sort of assigned to Line to keep his head on a swivel because some of the time, and Ovechkin does this too, and Line has started to as well they'll sneak down towards the face-off circle. And you cannot have a one-timer of that ilk flying at you from the face-off circle. I think Ovechkin, I've seen highlight packs of him just scoring from the face-off circle because he's snuck down unbeknownst to the penalty killer. So you don't need to necessarily stay on a Stamkos or you stay on an Ovechkin or you stay in a line, but you definitely need to stay aware of where they are on the ice. Now, something that these teams do, like Winnipeg, Tampa Bay, Washington, they don't generate shot volume to the extent that you'd think they would, but they generate shot quality to a ridiculous extent. So what I mean by that is if you just look at power plays over the last two or three years and you sort them by shot attempts or scoring chances, they won't be number one overall. Some of them aren't even in the top five, but their goals per 60 are ridiculously high, meaning that they're able to shoot at a high shooting percentage. And the reason they're able to do it is, A, having talented shooters like Ovechkin, Lane, Stamkos. But it's also the pre-shot movement you're creating. It's the fact that you get that east-west pass 
from a Blake Wheeler to a Patrick Lane that forces the goalie to move from left to right in his crease, and now you've got nowhere to go. Sometimes if you have predictable shots, even though you have high shot volume, well, the goalie's going to be square to the puck, and it's a much easier save. With teams like Tampa Bay, Washington, and Winnipeg, that's just not the case. The defenders and the goaltenders are scrambling all over the place, and it results in them sustainably shooting at a high percentage. Right, and I saw a Tampa Bay power play, I want to say it was a week and a half ago, where Kucherov pushed it into point, and so immediately the D are scrambling to respect the shot. Point pushes it down to the to JT Miller, who's in the corner on Kucherov's side, and now you're scrambling even more because you just went to point, and now it's not at point. And then JT Miller fired a pass in, through the seam to Stamkos for a one-timer. And it all happened within a matter of three seconds. So when you get D scrambling and turning and their sticks are flying everywhere, that's sort of where the breakdowns happen. And it all started with one quick scene pass. Now, we've talked about teams who use the 1-3-1 in a way where they're looking to set up a one-time option on the left side of the ice, typically. You know, Stamkos, Lane, Ovechkin, that's the main trigger point. That's where you want to get the puck, and then everything else kind of works because of it. I was wondering if we could shift gears and talk about a team that uses the 1-3-1 formation, but doesn't use it like that. And if you look at the way that the Toronto Maple Leafs have run their power play, especially last year, where they had the most effective power play in the NHL, they didn't have a shooting option on the left side of the ice. I mean, Tyler Bozak was the player that they had in, in Ovechkin's office. You're not looking to feed Bozak a one-timer in the slot. You know, it's just he's not going to score very often. But the Leafs were able to generate a crazy amount of shots and scoring chances because of the way that they were able to work this triangle down low. So let me explain the, the uh, formation for people who don't know the Maple Leafs power play. JVR was in front of the net. Mitch Marner was in his office on the right wall. Morgan Riley was at the point, and Nazem Kadri was in the middle of the ice as the bumper. Tyler Bozak was technically on the ice, but he didn't really do much. He was over on the on the far left, and it was just it was so interesting to see how they got the puck to Marner and they just shovel it down low, whether it was to JVR or a slap pass to Kadri. And the whole goal of that unit it wasn't to create the cross ice movement, it wasn't to create the one timer in the in the top of the circle the way that the other units used it. They just wanted to get the puck down low create rebounds, create deflections, create chaos, and then all four players would converge for the rebound and try to score. And it was effective. It, was, it wasn't the prettiest power play. It wasn't necessarily, you know, highlight real hockey like what you watch in Tampa Bay, but it was effective. Well, the thing that gets overlooked there is what Marner did. So when he set up sort of on that half wall, he moved a lot more than a Backstrom or a Kucherov because he's not a shooting threat in the way that Kucherov is. And so what he would do is he would almost, he'd carry the puck up from down low, almost around to the top of the circle, and he had his head up surveying the whole time, so he could fire a pass at any given moment. And the options that create were created were this. Once he comes around the circle, he can either shoot the puck, he can put the puck into the middle of the ice as a shot pass for Nazim Kadri. And you saw this work a lot in the fact that a puck that's deflected is significantly harder to stop as a goaltender than a puck that's just straight on. Also leads to a rebound more often. Exactly. That's just, it's what the numbers say. So when you have that option and then you have a giant of a human being with good hands in front of the net, you also have the option of the fake shot and JVR kind of 
put his body in the way that he presented his stick in the lower slot and all he had to do was tap it in. But had Marner elected to either shoot the puck or shoot for that high tip for Kadri, the rebound's there and JVR's in body position and in stick position to get the puck. So it was all about sort of how JVR positioned his body, whether it was to accept a pass or to be a screen. And Mitch saw that because on his way down from the circle, he was surveying the situation. So he could see whether his option to Kadri was open or if JVR was open for the pass or if it was better off to just sort of funnel the puck down. And that's what created so many scoring opportunities was because Mitch Marner had a number of options that he could have chosen. And as a defender, you almost get frozen because you have to respect Kadri's high tip because that's difficult to stop. But then you have to respect the tap-in that Marner can create. And that's why we saw last year a lot of tap-ins to JVR. And this year, John Tavares is just... His average goal distance on the power play must be four feet. The number of empty nets he's shot pucks into this year is pretty funny, but... Getting back to last year's power play, I was surprised that teams weren't able to stop it because it just felt so predictable to me in that Morgan Riley wasn't a shooting threat from the blue line. Tyler Bozak wasn't a shooting threat from the top of the left circle. I thought they should have been able to take away the space from Mitch Marner for him to get those passes down low to JVR or to make that pass to Kadri. But for whatever reason, they were able to make it work. Tactically, what were they doing to open up that space? Just because it felt to me like it was something that shouldn't have worked yet seemed to work almost every time. So the thing on the power play that coaches are really strict about is that if you're going to challenge that you do not get beat in a one-on-one because let's say you're playing five on four and while it might have just been Kadri, Marner, JVR, Bozak is still an option and there were times that he crept down sort of towards the net, um, kind of just below the face-off circle and in a little bit, um, just at the top of the inner slot there. And that's also a passing option for Mitch but you can't get beat one-on-one because then it becomes a five-on-three down low and that's a big problem so what happened was when Marner would take the puck sort of from almost the goal line and skate all the way up to the top of the circle and sort of turn to come back south towards the the net you can't have your defenseman chase from the goal line all the way up to the top of the circle because then you create a mismatch because your forward then has to come and play against JVR and that's just not going to work. So a lot of times the D would have to either stay put with JVR or they'd have to let Marner go all the way up the wall. And at that point, you hope that the forward puts pressure on Marner. But then at that point, Marner has the ability to beat him one-on-one And as soon as that forward attacks Marner, Kadri's now wide open for the pass. So it was all about timing. And coaches just don't want their defenders committing to that extent. And I think what's interesting this year is that the power plays changed a little bit in that Tyler Bozak is now Austin Matthews, who's a legitimate shooting threat from the left side of the ice. Even though he's on his strong side, it's not a slap shot one-timer. He has one of the best catch-and-shoot releases on his strong side. Like, you can whip a, a strong side past him. He can receive it and let it go all in the span of, like, half a second. So it basically is a one-timer the way he uses it. And the fact that Mitch Marner can thread that pass. You were seeing it at the beginning of the year. Marner was getting that pass or the fact it would go either Marner to Riley to Matthews or M- Marner to Matthews to Riley back to Matthews. 
those three were just playing catch. And I remember this one goal like really vividly. Marner had a shot fake and he thread the needle over to Matthews, who had a wide open net. But instead of just shooting in the I don't think there was a defender within 20 feet of him. He put the pass into Tavares, who was on the opposite side of the net, and the goaltender was sliding in every which direction as a pretzel because the poor guy (laughs) just got caught going three different directions at once. And Tavares had probably two and a half seconds if he wanted to, to tap that puck in. And he had the entire net because the goalie had slid from the left side of the ice to the other. So he'd literally slid out of his crease. Yeah. Tavares was just staring at an open net. It was almost funny. I felt bad for the goalie though. So when you put Matthews there now, when that pass comes through to him his catch and release I mean it's been well documented that he's reinvented his release pretty much every season just to keep goalies guessing and when he fires that thing like it's pretty hard to stop one-on-one so you have to respect his shot when that pass comes through and so immediately as the defender on that side you're going down to either block the shot or you're trying to come out and challenge him and Tavares also well documented is very good at creating space in front of the net So Kadri, who's sort of the middle guy on that power play when he's healthy, is just there kind of to cause a distraction and to collapse to the net once the shots actually happen. Because Kadri is there to open a passing lane up to Matthews. That's essentially what it is, because you want to create that royal road pass. You want to create an opportunity for Matthews to shoot the puck because he does have the best shot on the team where that's concerned. Yeah, and I would argue he might have the best strong side wrist shot in the NHL. And that's a very specific shot because, I mean, it's not like a one-timer like Ovechkin or it's not like on his off wing taking wrist shot, but his ability to beat goaltenders on the left side of the ice with a left-handed shot, the way he's able to pull the puck into his body, so it gives him more of a shooting angle, and then he's able to fire it bar down, get it through sticks. It's, It's very unique and it's very difficult to stop, especially on the left side of the ice. Right, and I think one of the things we see here is we the three power plays we talked about earlier, they all have one-timer threats, but with Toronto's, they use the passing ability of Mitch Marner, the shooting ability of Austin Matthews, and then the net front presence of Tavares and just his ability to create space. The one thing that all four power plays have in common is there are high-end talent on all of the power plays you need the high-end talent a guy like Braden Point a guy like Mark Shifley a guy like Nick Backstrom or Mitch Marner to be able to make those passes players that aren't of that type of caliber just don't have the ability in the same way that those players do to make that extra pass or to see that extra opportunity and that's what creates the chaos for the penalty killers which is why in a 1-3-1 formation, there are so many different options that you can use, and that's what makes defending it so tough. Uh, I know there's some research that came out at the Seattle uh, Hockey Analytics Conference about height and weight not having any predictive value when it comes to determining who's going to be an NHL player, and it made me think immediately of uh, Braden Point and Mitch Marner. You tweeted about them. I'm not even sure if they're 170 pounds, but they get the puck on their stick. They're a pretty special player. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that when you're drafting, let's say, the top 10, or you're drafting a skilled player that you envision playing on your top two lines, the height and weight doesn't matter as much. However, 
you need to have players sort of at the bottom end of your lineup. They don't have to be the gritty sort of rough and tumble players, but they need to be able to win the puck battles. They need to be able to win on the boards. So even a player like Zach Hyman or Connor Brown, they're not the biggest of guys and they're definitely not the most skilled of guys, but they can win those battles in a way that a smaller player like perhaps Tyler Ennis can't. What about a guy like Trevor Moore, though, who's a smaller guy but has that like feist in him to go win puck battles in the corners? You still need, when you're going into a playoff series especially, and don't get me wrong, I really like Trevor Moore as a hockey player, you still need that sort of board battle kind of player because in a playoff series, you need to wear the other team's defense down in order to create the mistakes, whether they're mental mistakes or actual mistakes on the ice. And the more leaning on them that you do in the way that Freddie the Goat sort of does it, the harder it becomes for them. So I don't want to say that Trevor Moore is not effective because he absolutely is. But as a defender, when I'm going back, if I got to pick a guy, Freddie Goche or Trevor Moore, I would rather Trevor Moore come after me than Freddie Goche. Like, I'm going to think twice. I don't know if Frederick Goche is going to hit you, man. He'll probably just hug you. Yeah, but if you're, <laughs> but the, my point there is a six foot five guy leaning on you versus a five foot nine guy leaning on you, you don't want to give up too much skill, but you do have to have those players that can go in and lean on guys. But when it comes to drafting for your top two lines for high-end skill... I would take Mitch Marner over most players who are over six foot two in the NHL right now. Or even like a Clayton Keller in that draft, I think is a good example. Smaller guy, but high end talent. You know, that's what you're looking for. Counter arguments, what you're talking about. Tampa Bay absolutely dominated Boston in the playoffs last year in every element of the game, forechecking, you know, sustaining pressure, winning puck battles. Yet every one of their players was basically smaller than Boston's players. You look at their top nine, it's a bunch of guys 5'10 and under. How were they able to do it? So Boston has a bunch of big players, and they don't move as quickly. So that's the one caveat there. But I think it's important to point out that when you are building your team, yes, you need to have players that can win board battles, but these players also need to have skill. So a guy like Andre Palat, for example, or Yanni Gord, actually, Anthony Sorelli, they're not as big as David Backus is, but when they're in the corner, they're still effective at winning board battles. So that's the sort of, you need a heavy style of game to be able to win those board battles because the odds of you outskilling Jake DeBrusque when you're a third or fourth line player, not that good. So you need to be able to kind of go in the corners and you might not be the biggest, but if you're leaning on guys, you're still wearing them down. I like it. I like where you're coming from. And before we get too off the rails, we'll probably have to save a conversation like this for a later date. But just to wrap things up, uh, we, we talked about the power play today. We talked about a, f a few different units. If you had to pick one unit, you get one power play in uh, game seven overtime to score you a winning goal. Are you going with Tampa Bay at their height? Are you going with Washington with Ovechkin? You going with Winnipeg and Lane and Bufflin, a healthy unit? Or are you going with Toronto, whether it was last year's unit or this year's unit? Uh, right now, I'm going with Tampa Bay. I just think that 
to have the shooting option of Kucherov, but the fact that both him and Stamkos can still make the the plays on the half walls, and you've got Point, who's just high end skill. It's they had just have too many options. It's way too many options, way too much skill, and like we've seen, they just can't be stopped right now. And I think that's the hard part. Is I was going to agree, and it's hard. I wanna I wanna have different opinions. I want to be able to bring up different points, but. The fact that Kucherov and Stamkos and Hedman, that's been working for so many years, but introducing Point into the middle of that, having Braden Point, a 100-point player, in the middle of your 1-3-1, along with Kucherov and Stamkos, who are top three in power play points over the last few years, it's just unfair, and I can't get enough of Tampa Bay like at 5-on-5, five five, let alone on the power play, but man, it's fun to watch when you have that much skill on the ice. Oh, absolutely, and I hope that Tampa's able to keep that power play together. I know points contracts, it's got to be relatively big, but if they can keep that unit together for years to come, that's pretty dangerous and pretty difficult to deal with. Watch them sign him for like six years at like 7.2 million because Tampa Bay. (laughs) But anyways, we should get out of here. This was a fun first podcast that we did together. I felt like we, we did a half decent job at covering some of the stats, covering a lot of the tactics and, I don't know. These are the kind of discussions I really wanted to get into. And I'm glad that I have someone like you who's worked with NHL teams behind the scenes so I can bounce some ideas off of. Yeah, I mean, I think it uh, gives the fans sort of a different perspective and maybe a window into what coaches are thinking. And hopefully um, we'll get some more stats definitely in there. We can talk about how coaches sort of use those stats and what stats that they really like and maybe some of the flaws that some other stats have. It's definitely... No shortage of topics for us, that's for sure. I was worried about going too nerdy in the inaugural episode. You know, I didn't want to turn off too many of the uh, the hockey men in this world. So I, I figured I'd keep it light early on. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right. So that is episode one. If you want us to talk about a specific topic in the future, be sure to tweet at us. Uh, Rachel is Rachel Dory on Twitter, at Rachel Dory. How do you spell your last name, Rachel, for people who don't know? D O E. R-R-I-E. What's the German pronunciation of that? That's got to be like Dory or... Dory. Dory, Dory. And uh, I am at Ian Graff on Twitter. I hope you can spell that one. And uh, yeah, this is the inaugural edition of the Staff and Graff podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graff podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic, and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.